The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. No mai hoki mai ki Otherfold, e mihi nei ko Duncan Grieve toku ingoa. Uh, my guest today is Sarah Jane Payne, who is the research director at Growing Up in New Zealand, which is an enormous and, and fascinating longitudinal uh demographic research study run out of the University of Auckland. Uh, as with uh, Dr. Paul Spoonley uh, a few weeks ago, some of you might be thinking that's that's a bit outside of scope for the fold, and and maybe it is, but it was honestly talking to, to Paul that sort of got me thinking about the ways in which we, as media, we, you know, we're so consumed with our own analytics and our own data, and and we pay a lot of attention to that of other sort of related industries. You know, whether it's TV ratings or the, uh, you know, radio radio studies. You know, how many unique visitors stuff has versus the Herald. But we don't think about the big glacial changes and 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 insights into our society uh, at, at a holistic level. That's why I'm such a fan of, you know, regular listeners to this podcast will know that where the audience's day is, 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 you know, up there with Christmas for me. That's the New Zealand On Air research study that, that looks at, the, tries to have a, a pan-media look at uh, audience behaviours. And uh, so this, I view this as related to that. The other reason that I'm, I'm so into this study is because I'm also – on some level, in this study, um, our our middle daughter is is one of the six thousand kids who who are part of this this cohort, uh, born in two thousand nine and two thousand ten, who are being followed throughout their life to date. And so I know just how much detail, how um, you know how how broad a sense of well being and behavior and the factors that might drive those uh, that, that that goes into the study. You know, it, it is hours and hours that you put into it. Um, and and as a result, you know, the, the Dunedin longitudinal study is rightly very famous. This, because it starts pre-birth and because it's such a large number, has, has the potential to be, uh, I think, even, uh, even more interesting over time. Um, 
Uh, Sarah Jane is Naituhoi. She uh, comes at you know this this research position from a Tiao Māori lens, a Kopapa Māori lens, and is not, you know, and and you know talks about how some of her her not necessarily her motives, but some of who she is as a researcher is about critiquing some of the ways that kind of. Um, maybe Western modes of science and research have been applied to, to indigenous people. Um, but, uh, and, and then from there, we sort of go, so we talk about her and, and how she came to the study. She's, you know, the, the study is uh, you know, 14 years old now. She's been at its head since uh, the start of last year. So, um, and we talk about really the things they've started to learn, you know, like about, uh you know, young people in New Zealand about this very specific group of them. It started out in in Auckland, Kandis Monaco, and in the Waikato, and now it's spread throughout the country I- inevitably. Um, and yeah, it's you know, and and we there are some kind of more core media specific elements. You know, they 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 do um, ask kids about about their screen time and so on. Though she acknowledges that it's probably more of a blunt instrument question that will because of the way, and you'd never have known this at the start, the extent to which screens have become such a vast proportion of the day. And, and you know, what, what used to be a phone is now a much more complex object in terms of what you do with it, uh, you know, that they'll, they'll sort of likely evolve that over time. But, um, yeah, it's, it, I, th- I think the growing up in New Zealand study is one of the most significant and, and interesting pieces of research that is currently ongoing in this country, and and if all goes right, everyone from the media to to our political leaders to, to businesses will be studying its contents, deriving insights from them, and ultimately understanding better this country and particularly uh, its its young people uh, for years to come. So uh, this is Sarah Jane Payne research director of Growing Up in New Zealand on the Fold. Tēnā and uh, welcome, Sarah-Jane Payne, Research Director at Growing Up in New Zealand. Duncan. Nice to meet you. I wonder if you could start by sort of explaining your path to, to the Research Director role, which I think you're, you're relatively fresh in still, is that right? Yeah, I started as the Research Director for Growing Up in New Zealand in January 2022, so it's interesting that you describe it as a as a map. So I suppose for me the starting point um, is is my whānau and is you know my life story, which um, involves growing up in a family where education was um, really important and seen as a a pathway to to other things in life. So um, you know growing up with um, parents who really encouraged me um, to be engaged in school and to um, to try my best and to see university as an option um, and part of my my future pathway that was that was how I grew up um, but also being around um, women in particular and, and wahine Māori who um, had their own ideas and their own views about the world and and um, what was important for life and what made a good life. I think has been really formative. You don't realise these things when you're a, when you're a kid, um, but I think back on my life and, and think of a number of women, and we might we might get to to that later on. But 
you know, so going into university was um, part of my upbringing. Um, I don't think I probably ever imagined I would be a researcher. That I don't remember that being a career option for a child of the 80s and, and 90s. It was sort of doctor, teacher, lawyer. Um, and so I, I went off to university, um, did what I thought was a, a good idea, which was to, to um, enrol in a science degree, which, um, again, looking back, um, might seem interesting because what I do a lot of now is um, critique science and in particular Western science and Western uh, knowledge systems, um, but that was what I really enjoyed as a young as a young person. And so I'll fast forward a little bit. Finished um, a couple of science degrees and thought I'd better get a real job, but again didn't really have um, an understanding of um, what one could do with a with a science degree. Um, and found myself working as a researcher in a um, in a project that was using a Kopapa Maori. Uh, approach to undertaking epidemiology, and I think everyone knows what epidemiology is now, thanks to the. <laughs> Not a, but we do now. Yeah, COVID nineteen, and so um, I mentioned that because that first opportunity, that first job I had um, when I left university, um, brought me together with a group of uh, predominantly Wahine Māori researchers, uh, Māori health researchers, public health researchers. That was that we're using epidemiology as a tool to monitor the crown in relation to health inequities, um, to critique the discipline of epidemiology itself and, and the way that it shapes all of our understandings about what health and wellbeing looks like and who suffers poor health and disease um, and what interventions should be put in place. Um, so that was, that, that was a change in my map and sent me on a new trajectory, which was discovering what it meant to be a um, a Māori who used research to answer interesting questions I had about my whānau, um, my communities, our society here in Aotearoa, and how we could use some of these research tools um, to really interrogate that um, and to think about the role of systems and structures in creating that reality, but also the potential for those same systems and structures to create a new vision for Aotearoa. So I promise I'm getting getting to your question, how do you end up then working for Growing Up in New Zealand? Um, I think, again, it's an opportunity to think about uh, well-being not as one point in time, but the accumulation of experiences of relationships, of um, policies and pressures on families and how they um, support some children and young people to live full and flourishing lives, um, but at the same time limit uh, the, the potential and opportunities of others. And so that's, um, that's how I see growing up in New Zealand, the contribution we can make to a conversation here in Aotearoa around that, and really hoping I can bring that, um, not just a tell Māori view to the study, but actually the, the critical gaze that comes from a kaupapa Māori positioning um, when we do ask questions about why do some children and young people in, in this country um, not have their basic rights being upheld. That's that's really fascinating and, and instructive and, and I, what I, I guess I, I would love to know, actually, almost 
let's baseline what the what the study you know what what its origins were and what what it sets out to do because it's a pretty extraordinary uh, thing you know we, I think we all or, or a bunch of us would know about the Dunedin longitudinal study which is probably one of you know even a, on a global scale a really significant um, you know way of looking at a population over time this has the potential to be you know a, as interesting if not more so but because of the way it's been designed and and the scope of it so do you want to explain um, the, the nature of growing up in New Zealand yeah um you're right growing up in New Zealand I describe it as the longitudinal study for Aotearoa and everything that Aotearoa means to us today so um you might have heard the study being described before as New Zealand's largest uh, contemporary longitudinal study of, of child and youth wellbeing. Um, and its uh, strengths are in the diversity of the, the cohort, the group, the group of families um, who volunteered um, back in 2009 and 2010 to be part of this um, really amazing study and to allow us to um, be part of their lives um, so that we can understand what life is like growing up in, in New Zealand. So the notion that the the study is both contemporary and diverse, I think, is, is really important. So we have, um, the way the study was designed, we have groups of children and young people who identify as Māori, as Pacific, as Asian, um, as Pākehā New Zealanders. That is the makeup of our, our society today. And so it's really important that research reflects those different communities. Um, we uh, recruited families from the Auckland counties, Manukau and Waikato, DHB reasons, um, back in 2009-2010. But fast forward to uh, 2022, when we finished our most recent interviews, and these, these families are living all over Aotearoa. Um, and again, moving around is, is really part of um, New Zealand life at the moment. So, I mean, and that's that almost gets to what will make it so, I mean, I'm sure it already is making it so instructive because, you know, and as I mentioned in, in the intro, my, my um, daughter is part of the cohort, so I've had a kind of a, a visibility over it, but also a sense of just how intricate it is, how much, uh, you know, if you when you're splitting set up, this thing is hours, and it's thousands of kids. The amount of data and the ability to kind of pass what's causation, what's correlation, or, you know, what kind of the insights broadly that you you can get out of it will be quite extraordinary. What what are some of the things which, some of the insights which sort of leap out to you or, or, or some, some of the things that you think the study is already starting to to show us, uh, you know, uh, uh, in, in terms of that cohort, which is sort of 13, 14 years old now. Mm. Yeah, so one of the um, the features of, of a longitudinal study like ours who um, recruits or invites uh, families to take part, in, in our case, before the children were even born, so we had women who were pregnant at the time of their enrolment, is that it enables um, us to understand and document and then look at how the early years, um, so a lot of people talk about the first 1,000 days of life, so those um, prenatal influences through to the first two years of life for a child are really formative for uh, creating the foundations for positive um, 
development um, for um, securing strong um, supportive relationships, generally parent-child relationships, and um, really ensuring that those children have everything uh, that they need for future well-being. So, you know, a really good example um, is in some of our recent research that shows that um, the sort of patterns of well-being you can see in a longitudinal study, um, you can see that some children and young people, um, their their pathway through life from from birth through to 12 years of age, it might look like a straight line that in general they tend to do well on every measure of well-being that we look at. But actually for a a large majority of families in this study, um, their well-being goes through a lot of what we call flux, sort of sort of changes up and down. And I, th- I think that makes sense, not just from a scientific point of view, but just, just from thinking about our own lives that um, in those early years, often um, families uh, might drop some income as one or two parents um, step away from work to look after a child. And that can put a lot of pressure on, on a family um, to not have two sources of income. But then once that child grows up and they go into school, then you you might see um, those parents or caregivers re-entering the, the workforce and so income will then come up again, um, which is supportive of well-being. Um, so you do see a lot of flux over a child's life. I suppose what the patterns I'm really interested in um, and are concerned about are some of the patterns we see where children in whānau um, find themselves experiencing hardship and you'll see a pattern where they, we describe it as sort of being, uh, they've fallen into hardship and they stay there for a long time. They don't seem to have the supports or the resources around them to lift them back up um, in the same way that some other families um, do. And so we know from studies like the Dunedin study and like similar studies um, internationally that if you stay in those um experiences of of hardship or disadvantage in those early years of a child's life, then that's actually setting you up for um, much longer term and significant health and wellbeing problems. I mean, one of the things I had um, Paul Spoonley on this podcast relatively recently uh, talking about the demography, he was particularly talking about the super diversity of Auckland. But, But the other thing that you sort of see is that the demography of New Zealand as a whole looks quite different from young New Zealand, Um, you know, and I wondered if you could talk about that sort of, uh, you know, how how the demography of of your cohort looks versus um, New Zealand or Aotearoa as a whole. Mm. And that that idea that um, New Zealand was growing into this um, very diverse society was informative um, in, at the very beginning of the study. Um, the way in which uh, the the team who, who were there at the start looked to recruit families into the study was because there was this notion that um, we would see more children and young people who identify themselves in much more diverse ways than perhaps some of us 
older generation might do. So um, in our most recent um, round of reporting earlier this year, we released some really interesting findings that showed that um, 30% of our cohort identify um, with uh, multiple different ethnicities. And so I think that is a really nice reflection of what Aotearoa is like today. You've got 12-year-olds who understand with and can identify with multiple different groups, Māori, Pacific, uh, different types of European ethnic groups, um, different types of Asian groups. And that that does both, I think, um, reflect that early notion that this was the path that Aotearoa was heading into. But I think for me, I'm really interested in the fact that young people see themselves in that way. And that's a really important um, part of forming a strong wellbeing foundation for their lives that they can see themselves. I mean, that, that speaks to one of the things I wanted to drill into a bit, which is that one of the sort of pillars that you identify as, as part of the research is this sort of culture and identity piece. And, and in some respects, you know, in, in the early years, that's something that is really and inevitably kind of largely driven by the parents and their responses. Now the kids are starting to be of an age where they're starting to self-direct and, and self-identify more in that respect. What are you, what are you seeing there that, that is sort of noteworthy about, uh, about that sort of broad set, what way of looking at these, these kids? Yeah, I suppose the first thing I would say is um, developing a strong sense of identity is really important for for future well-being, being strong in your understanding of who you are, um, uh, who are the people that you relate to, what are the the beliefs and the um, I suppose the the broader cultural dynamics that that you see yourself as as belonging to is is really important. Um, at eight years of age, um, when we interviewed the young people um, and we asked questions about um, what ethnic groups they identified with, we were able to show that, yes, young people, one, they can answer these sorts of questions, and and two, when you compare their eight-year information with their 12-year information, um, there's a little bit of change, but, but not that much. So for me, the way I think about that is that these notions of identity and culture are part of a young person's um, uh, life earlier than probably a lot of um, their parents and caregivers realise. It's not necessarily something that every family is talking about at, at the dinner table, but um, when you give children and young people an opportunity to answer those questions, then they are able to, to articulate that. I mean, we did also in, in our recent data, we not only asked young people what groups they identify with, but how they feel about their their ethnic group. And I thought that was a real celebratory moment for the study and for young people again, because we showed um, for Rangatahi Māori, for Pacific young people, for Asian young people, they, um, they have a strong sense of belonging to those groups. They feel proud to belong to those groups. They really enjoy um, that part of their identity. So, um, you know, Given the sort of um, the social dynamics um, of contemporary societies, these young people feel feel really good in themselves. So my question, um, not just of the study, but for all of us, is um, what are we doing um, when we start to chip away 
at that strong sense of identity. You see in other research, um, and particularly through the adolescent years, that there can be a bit of erosion of that strength of identity. And I, I don't believe that's any doubt in the young person's mind, but a lot of the, the pressures that society puts on, on young people and, and questioning who they are and what role they have to do in our communities. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Uh, I mean, that, that sort of leads me to, to the closest we'll get to, to sort of core media. And, and I'm not actually certain to what, you know, to what extent you, you can answer this. But the, the other thing that's fascinating, I mean, there's so many, you got very lucky with the cohort in some respects, right? Because, you know, I think about 2009-10 when you sort of picked them up was essentially where, where, you know, that was really the moment when the internet and smartphones uh, were coming on stream, the monoculture, the, the behaviours that maybe you and I grew up with were starting to become aberrant for young people rather than, than natural for them. Uh, you know, firstly, to what extent uh, do, do you look at uh, their sort of, you know, their time online, their behaviours online, uh, you know, that that whole piece of of their um, of their sort of behaviour or, or kind of cultural uh, kind mm. of out, outlook, mm. if you will. Yeah, I mean, we would be foolish as a as a research project not to ask young people in our cohort about their social media use and how much time they're, they're spending on devices, because, like you say, it's such a dominant feature of all of our all of our lives today. Um, and so there have been questions asked of the cohort around that and um, some nice um, analysis looking at time spent on, on social media and trying to tease out some some of the potential impacts it has on, on wellbeing. I suppose one of the things that um, we should be thinking about is really the normalisation of devices and social media within our within our lives. So what I mean by that is um, at one point we would have been asking questions about device use because it was a peculiarity, you know, you know, maybe that was a this new thing that was encroaching on a young person's life and um, you know, see it as a as a risk and there are definitely some risks uh, related to time spent on devices, related to the type of content that is um, uh, being shared um, and, and put in front of our young people. But actually um, moving forward is, is such a normal part of our lives. You know, we need to really think more about the way in which social media and device use is uh, portrayed as a risk in some instances, but 
um, if we look at our research that we did with the cohort during the first parts of the COVID-19 pandemic and the way in which um, device use enabled our children and young people to stay engaged with school, to be able to FaceTime Farno and friends and to really ensure that those relationships which are critical to how they feel um, in terms of their um, emotional well-being, they then become a, a, um, a positive uh, sort of tool that we can use. So I think there is room for us to be a bit more nuanced about how we think about devices from the point of view of young people, not, not from our, our sort of analogue way of thinking about the world. Yeah, there's a huge complexity there and, you know, and even down, down to, you know, your sort of that point you were making before about people's uh, identity being, you know, that, that can be something that's really nourished in those spaces. It can also be something where, where it's eroded depending on the kinds of content people are exposed to in what particular environments. Do you is there a, do you go through a device into a sort of a, a platform or level, or is it is it you know where, where does it end? I guess is the question I'm asking in terms of how how uh, deep and, and textured your, your research is in those areas. Yeah, I, I would say Duncan probably a bit superficial because of this view we've all come from that, you know, social media is this sort of singular thing, that there are only a couple of devices that we're, we're talking about, you know, mobile phones and, and maybe an iPad if, if the child was lucky, but it is um, it is in everything that we use every day, um, including in the ways that our children, even while they're in the classroom environment, are using the internet and are using different types of um, devices to enhance their learning. So I think if this is something that we're going to um, do more research on, we do need to, to have a more um, complex uh, gaze over, over what it is and why we think it might disrupt and or enhance well-being. I think that's that's the question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, that's the, the opportunity because the, the government often does a lot of um, different pieces of research, some of which kind of o overlap well. Like there's a study I'm really interested in um, uh, called Where Are the Audiences, which New Zealand On Air does and has, has got a particular kind of uh, rangatahi stream associated with that. Um, but which is very detailed down to kind of time spent and so on, but then has none of this uh, sort of health and well-being overlay. So sometimes you're like, I just wish these things could, could match up, you know. Um, you mentioned the pandemic before. That, that obviously is an awful thing, but also an extraordinary thing in terms of this, you know, just a singular event to be forced through everyone's lives associated and, and at a very particular age group. Also a challenge to actually completing the research, a lot of which um, you know, has, has historically been done face-to-face. -face. Uh, how did you handle it and, and what are you starting to see out of uh, how it has impacted your cohort? Mm. Yeah, so we, um, like you say, we were very fortunate that we have a supportive and engaged cohort or, or group of families that are a part of the Growing Up in New Zealand study. So back in um, 2020, when COVID-19 um, arrived here in Aotearoa and we went all went into those um, very strict public health restrictions and, and lockdowns, the, the team at the time had the foresight to think this is 
and a pivotal moment, not just for Aotearoa and and um, the world, but actually a pivotal moment in a child's life to go through such a such an experience. So that team got together um, and they created a, a an interview, a questionnaire for for our families to understand what the experience was like, um, to understand um, how people essentially were spending their time at home while we were all in lockdown. Um, but then importantly, to think about what some of the potential impacts of those lockdown measures might have for young people at that time, but moving into the future. So um, that was that was the first time the Growing Up in New Zealand team um, pivoted to a fully online interview. So previously, and I think it's been really important in the, the early stages of the study and when the um, when the young people were babies and children, our team would um, bring whānau um, and make an appointment to go literally into their homes and spend how many hours, Duncan? One, two, maybe three. Yeah, that was a while. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you got, you got familiar. <laughs> there in your living rooms, probably going through um, very comprehensive questions, which has meant that we have this very rich source of information about well-being. Um, but none of us would have been able to tolerate the, that um, under lockdown conditions. And so it was it was a really important moment for us to think about how do we collect information that respects the challenging and stressful environments we, uh, the whānau we're all going through during COVID-19, but will allow us to um, provide some really important insights that can inform sort of future future pandemic uh, responses. So that was the work that was done in, in 2020. And the things I remember about um, that particular interview was, yes, it was it was a difficult time, but actually when you ask the children themselves, um, they told us in their, in their interview and in, in the questions we asked, they actually really enjoyed being around people. So lockdown meant that they had um, more... Uh, time with important adults in their lives, typically parents, but whoever else was in their bubble as we were describing it. And so they they enjoyed the time with other adults. They enjoyed the baking or the walks or whatever it was that we were all trying to busy ourselves with while we were working and, and managing um, pandemic stresses. Um, and so there are those sorts of benefits for, for children and young people from that 2020 survey. Um, some of the uh, questions we asked about um, their satisfaction around education um, were slightly more more challenging for, for young people. Um, and again, because you're, you're a parent, Duncan, as am I, um, having to connect our children into online learning, having to remember how to do intermediate level maths, that was, that was all pretty stressful for everyone. So I think the survey that we did in 2020 was a very good reflection of um, what actually the whole of Aotearoa were probably feeling at the time. If we skip ahead um, to 2021, um, the team at that point, we had always been planning to do an interview with, with the cohort, um, what we call the 12-year interview, so interviewing the young people when they were roughly 12 years of age. And so there's a lot of work and preparation that goes into 
um, creating those three-hour interviews that you all sit through. Um, and our team were, were ready. We'd, we'd gone through the process of planning. We'd um, done all our consultation work that was necessary. And um, August 2021, um, we all went back into a level four lockdown. That was the start of the, the um, long Auckland, lockdown. The long Auckland yeah. uh, outbreak. So for our team, it meant again um, taking a pause and thinking about what we could do to continue with the interview, um, but to do it in a way that met the public health restrictions and, and hopefully Duncan wasn't too burdensome for, for whānau. Um, and so that time we um, did a what we called a remote real-time interview where we um, we tried to use Zoom. We were all suddenly very familiar with, with Zoom due to COVID. Tried to use Zoom as a technology to give young people um, some support from our trained interviewers, um, but also providing some options around completing it independently via, via a link. Um, and, you know, that, that first um, outbreak in 2021 then rolled onto another outbreak in, in 2022. And so although we had hoped at some point we'd be able to um, get back in sort of a physical space, maybe not face-to-face, -face, but in a physical space with our cohort whānau, that wasn't, that wasn't possible. And so there were a lot of, um, lot of challenges for family, uh, families uh, going through COVID. And so the fact that we were able to complete 4,500 interviews as part of our 12-year data collection wave, I think is a real testament to the commitment um, that whānau have. I mean, I should probably ask you this question, Duncan, but it seems to me that families in our study have every excuse to not do an interview, and yet they, they put up with us during two COVID-19 lockdowns. I mean, it must say something about the, the, the importance of the study to these families. Yeah, it, it it absolutely feels like you're you're a privilege to be a sort of a a speck, but but still a, a meaningful part of this uh, this thing that has the potential to provide like a solid um, foundation for us just understanding in such uh, a more rich and textured way what what really impacts on on people's lives and you know and ultimately. What kind of policy or or just behavioural changes you might make that that can kind of address some things which have seemed really pernicious in in New Zealand society? Are, are you at that? I mean, what, the study is ongoing, and um, and as I understand it, has has just been powered up for longer again, which is which is fantastic. But at what point, like, are you already at the stage where you're starting to sort of see things where where you kind of are trying to kind of put those into places where they might actually become actionable insights as opposed to just, gee, that's interesting? Yeah. So um, I should say that was this idea that the information and insights that came, come from the Growing Up in New Zealand study, it was always imagined that it would help to shape and inform policies that were going to ensure that Aotearoa was the best place in the world to grow up to be a a child. Um, and so that was the original vision for the study. It hasn't just been this um, this interesting thing that a group of researchers thought might be 
need to, to do. We've had support from government from the very beginning to make sure that the data we collect and the research that we and many other researchers from around Aotearoa do have pathways um, or there are mechanisms in place so that it is going into um, government ministries, um, it is being fed up to ministers so that they are making um, we hope better decisions for children, young people and whānau based on evidence and based on evidence that comes from Aotearoa and reflects the the realities of children and young people growing up today. So there are examples um, where Growing Up in New Zealand data has um, helped to create safer playgrounds for young people. Um, a lot of our research into food and nutrition um, has supported uh, infant feeding guidelines. Um, some of our amazing student researchers have done research into immunisation that is, uh, again, being fed into the into the Ministry of Health. Um, I saw a recent um, announcement around the fortification of, of flour to reduce the risk of some really serious um, birth defects. And again, growing up in New Zealand, and data has been part of the evidence base that, that are shaping these really important health and wellbeing policies. What I'm really interested in, in doing in this next phase of, of growing up in New Zealand is not just using the data that comes from families to, to share with people who are in positions of power, but thinking about how we bring young people themselves into that decision-making process. And so, again, I think you'd need to be hiding under a rock if, if you um, haven't seen the power of rangatahi or the power of young people's voices. You know, we're, we're talking again, or young people are talking again about lowering the voting age. Um, they've been on the streets um, championing, championing Papatuanuku and the importance of looking after our place and our, our planet. Um, they're talking about the rights of rainbow communities. And so how I think we at Growing Up in New Zealand, yes, we provide important and rich source of um, evidence, of data, but I think we could also enable young people to be more fully part of the study for their voices not just to be heard through the interview, but through our research and through some of the really, um, I say, privileged, the real privileged opportunities we have to talk to people who, who make decisions and to enable young people to be part of that conversation. Um, you know, I think I think they have a lot of influence um, and we're really talking about their lives and, and futures. And so now's the time for us to let them speak for themselves and, and speak to their aspirations, I think. Absolutely. Uh, lastly, you know, again, uh, thinking about the, the, the context of this as a, as a, a podcast for people working in and around media and we've talked about the policy implications which are, are sort of fairly obvious but there there is a you know I think and you touched on it there a sort of a broader sense that a lot more facets of society can look at the at the data and the um, just the the incredible richness of the of, of what has flown out of it and how it reflects uh, and helps you understand this what will ultimately become you know that this is these are early high school now, within a few years, they'll be in the workforce, in, in, in higher education, in all kinds of different environments. Uh, you know, what, what do you think, you know, is, is the best way for, you know, society more broadly to engage with 
the study and, and the, the sort of stories it has to tell, the lessons it has to teach about, um, yeah, about this, this group. Mm. Um, I, I think the first thing that comes to mind actually is, is about the, the, the people and groups that I work with actually. So um, I mentioned the word privileged before. We, the team, we are in a very privileged position to be part of this study called Growing Up in New Zealand, to work so closely with Fano and young people to um, have the ability to to take the um, information we're gathering from, from young people and to share it with people in, in power. But actually, um, if I step back from that a little bit, that the way in which data and, and evidence has been used to privilege particular voices, often research voices and, and academic voices, um, it has a very long history in and of itself. Um, and many of us have um, built our, our careers and had amazing opportunities um, through through doing that. And so one of the things I'm, I'm really interested in is um, unlocking the power of the data, so that um, it is not there just for people who um, are called researchers. It is there, and we are sharing it in, it in ways that um, young people from the study they might they might like to um, take a piece of research and use it for a um, maybe they want to use it for a school project, or maybe they're part of a, a group or a club or society that wants to advocate for for something, or is trying to push a particular to issue, how do we um, unlock the data that we have and recreate it in ways that's useful for, for other groups? Again, a lot of the wellbeing issues that um, our research can really support things like child poverty, um, things like food insecurity, things related to our housing crisis, we as researchers and, and policy makers have an important role to play in addressing those, those issues. But there are NGO groups, there are school communities, um, there are hapu and, and iwi who are also fighting for those same things. So again, I'm really interested in how we as researchers can unlock it. And I, I wonder, um, to your to your point, the way in which um, we can use other channels, um, media channels, social media channels, different types of platforms to make data available. Because the traditional way is the academic journal article, which is usually paywalled and written in a way that so inaccessible that you know even after 20 something years of doing research myself I, I wonder what I'm I'm reading and and when we know that there's power in data um, we need to find ways to not reinterpret it um, but to share it back to those communities that have actually generously supported um, decades and decades of of research and evidence here in Aotearoa. That's a beautiful place to end it, and a good, you know, a good kind of widow to 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 people in the media and and to to everyone with proximity to the study about about opening it up and and uh, letting it sort of move and cross pollinate. Uh, thank you, Sarah Jane, so much for for coming on the fold today. It's it's honestly the most extraordinary study that that you're uh, at the head of now, and uh, yeah, really looking forward to watching it continue to evolve. Elder Duncan, Duncan, it's been a, a been a pleasure, um, and and thank you for your participation. <laughs> Kia ora e te iwi, te ahe Butler here, podcast manager at the Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz/donate.
the Spin-Off Podcast Network.